Welcome to Upthinking Finance, a podcast that offers a unique and discerning view of economics and financial planning. Here is your host, Emerson Fersh. Welcome back to another edition of Upthinking Finance. I'm Emerson Fersh. Robert Francis Kennedy once said, Every time we turn our heads the other way, when we see the law flouted, when we tolerate what we know to be wrong, when we close our eyes and ears to the corrupt because we are too busy or too frightened, when we fail to speak up and speak out, we strike a blow against freedom and decency and justice. As we head into the holiday season and into what I think will be a very interesting and probably very challenging year in 2024, I thought it'd be appropriate to bring on somebody who's been described by many as an eternal optimist. He's also a repeat guest on the podcast, and his name is Alex Craner. Alex has been extremely busy in the last number of months giving geopolitical commentary to a variety of podcast interviewers, as well as speaking at a variety of conferences all over the world. And he just has a very unique background and experience that I thought would be a nice way to end the year here. Alex is a father of two. He's written a number of books. He's the principal at Craner Analytics in Monaco and the founder of iSystem Trend Following, which is the foundation and was the basis for a collaborative effort between Alex and our firm to develop the Capital Investment Advisors Trend Following model. So it's my pleasure to welcome back to Upthinking Finance, coming to us from the beautiful principality of Monaco, my friend Alex Craner. Alex, welcome back. Thank you. Good to be with you again. And warm greetings from Monaco to all your viewers and listeners. Thank you. So today here in the U.S. is Thanksgiving, and we're entering the holiday season. And I thought it'd be just appropriate to have you back on. And for people who don't know, you have a pretty extensive geopolitical background and really a lot of exposure to areas that I think most people don't. And this is just a list of some things I'm aware of that you've been involved with in the last six months. I know you spoke at the Better Way Conference in Bath, UK back in June. I know like just a month or so ago, you were over in uh, Uzbekistan for the Verona Eurasian Economic Forum. You appear on podcasts regularly with Tom Luongo here in the US. I knew you were just on with Mel Kay here in the US. I know you've interviewed with Efrat Finnickson, which she's great over in Israel. I really like her a lot. And then John Waters in Ireland. I mean, this is just to name a few. And so, and I know there's a lot more. I mean, I know you've been very busy just talking and sharing your thoughts. And that coupled with your growing up in Yugoslavia, being involved in Croatian, you've been educated in the U.S., down in Brazil or South America, as I remember. I mean, Venezuela. Okay, yeah. So, I mean, you really have just a unique global background and exposure. And so the reason why I'm kind of laying all this out for people is because I thought it'd be really interesting to hear, first of all, if you could just give people as easily as this may not be, kind of a snapshot of where you see the world right now. And I will say we were just talking a moment ago. I think there are people who clearly see what's going on without any filters. And I think there is probably the majority of the people I interact with that feel that things are wrong, don't really know where to go with it. And so if you could lay out, just kind of given all this background, your perception of the world and and where we are right at the moment as we kind of head into the holiday season and approach 2024, I think that'd be a good place to start. Well, the Chinese proverb or saying, may you live in interesting times. Well, in that sense, we have all massively lucked out in the sense that we are living at a crossroads that is going to change human societies irreversibly. We're coming to a close of the continuity of a system that you might trace it back four or 500 years, or you might trace it back about 3,000 years, depending on how you wish to define it. But basically, 
for the last four or five hundred years, we had the unchallenged primacy of the West in the world. So Western powers controlled and dominated global trade and global finance from the time of the Venetian Empire across to the Lombard banking period in Italy, then to Spain and its conquest of uh, Central and South America, the Dutch Empire and the British Empire, and uh, now the British Empire about 100 years ago crossed the ocean and infiltrated the governing systems of the United States, helped itself to the American military, political, diplomatic power and the American wealth to continue building the empire. I think that this continuity of empire is coming to an end. It's a system of governance. So it's easy to look at the events today and to think like, oh, this is the United States uh, or Ukraine against Russia. It's the United States versus China. It's uh, Israel versus the Palestinians and the Syrians and India versus Pakistan. There's all these crises, fault lines all over the world. But I was just last week at a presentation by Kurt Volker, who was the U.S. ambassador to NATO. And he was delivering a presentation titled What We Learned in Ukraine Over the Last 18 Months of War. To my mind, the most important thing he said was that this conflict is really about the nature of governance. This is what he said. It's the clash of two systems. It's the clash between democracies and autocracies. And he explained this like the autocracies, authoritarian regimes, they treat their people like subjects, whereas democracies treat people like citizens. Okay, fine, fair enough, good enough, whatever. But in fact, what he was saying is exactly the same as what George Soros also said in his 2021 speech to the World Economic Forum gathering at Davos in Switzerland. So basically, this is right. This is correct. This is not a conflict between the United States and Russia or the United States and China or any localized nation versus nation conflict. This is really a conflict between two systems of governance. And even though people like Soros and Kurt Volker present this as it's the good guys versus all the tyrants and autocrats and the despots around the world, that's not really what it is. It is the Western world has been dominated for centuries by occult oligarchies that have grown up around the international banking cartel and the multinational corporations that they support. And so basically, this is who not only the world is up against, but also, even if they don't know it, it's the population, the Western Europeans, Australians, New Zealanders, Japanese, we're all up against this occult oligarchy, which hides behind the facade of democracy. So they give you democracy where you get to choose a Republican Congress or Republican president. And then after four years or six years, if you're not happy, then you get to choose the Democrat ones. In the UK, it's the Tories versus Labour. In every country, it's more or less the same thing where you think you're going to change something by voting somebody out and voting the other people in. But in the end, by some black magic <laughs> for decades and decades, we keep getting things that we reject, like war, crises, poverty, crime, uncontrolled immigration and collapse of the healthcare system and decay of our infrastructure. We keep getting that. On the other hand, we can't ever seem to get what we do want, which is safe streets, good jobs, good education, 
parks, libraries, hospitals. So there's somehow there's always plenty, plenty of money and funding for things that we do not want, like permanent wars all over the world, nonstop. But there's never money for the things that we do want. And now we have millions of people homeless across the Western world. And a relatively small amount of money could take care of that, but it can't be had. But 10 times that much can be had like this if it's for Israel or for Ukraine. And this is clearly not anybody's democratic choice. This is a facade of democracy that is concealing the real power structure, which is an occult oligarchy that's running the world. And so I think that this model of governance is coming to its end because it depends on force to assert its dominance over the world. And uh, today it has matched. It has met the force that it cannot defeat. So it's still fighting a proxy war against Russia in Ukraine. It's losing that war. And it also wants to defeat China or whatever, regime change it, subjugate it to its own ends to convert it to our model of governance. And that's not going to work either. China is too big, too powerful. Not only that, China and Russia have partnered up to resist this pressure. And then they started a new, I don't want to say bloc, but a movement of nations uniting in a multipolar arrangement, a multipolar global architecture. And they are forging relations based on constructive partnerships and trade and mutual security arrangements. And I read just today that in the last year, in China and India, more than 100 million people joined the consumer markets. I read the title. I didn't really go into how they define people who joined the consumer markets, but I'm pretty sure it's when your income goes over $5,000 per capita per annum, then you become like legit consumer. (laughs) And 100 million people or more, this is a very large market. And for anybody in the West who has anything to sell, if you're making widgets in your garage at home or you have a small manufacturer or you're a musician, whatever, wouldn't you want to join these people, offer what you have to them, and have a hundred million extra potential customers. Of course, everybody would. But the problem is that the West, under the rule of this oligarchy, cannot trade on any other terms than subjugate other nations and impose their terms. If they don't accept our model of governance, if they don't accept our rules, Then, in that case, we sanction them, we blockade them, we try to regime change them, we try to assassinate their leaders, we wage war on them, and so forth, because it's our terms or it's the highway. And so this is a problem. And I think that the events over the last three years have opened the eyes of many, many people, even in the West, because they've been telling us for decades how it's democracy versus despotisms and tyrannies, and we're spreading freedom and we're defending human rights around the world. And this was actually washing for many years. I mean, I was shocked that many of my better educated friends of whom I expected more intelligent opinions were completely on board with the destruction of Libya and destruction of Syria because the notion that this was being done for human rights, because Muammar Gaddafi was a madman and he was killing his own people, and then Bashar al-Assad was also a madman and he was killing his own people, so we have to intervene, we have the responsibility to protect. That was even an acronym, RPP. 
And so people were like, well, all right, you know, these are bad people. We have to take them down. So the Libyan people and the Syrian people and the Iranians and the Venezuelans and the Cubans and the Russians and the Ukrainians and the Belarusians and everybody can have this wonderful freedom and democracy. And now after, I think that after the COVID-19 pandemic, people are no longer buying that anymore. So I think that the system of governance of the Western oligarchies has come to an end. And that's very, very good news for everybody except them. And so I think that the process is going to take time, is going to be painful to an extent. And some people are going to get hurt. Some people are going to not make it through. But I think that the vast majority of humanity has good things to look forward to, including in the Western nations. I would conclude this long answer with one of my favorite quotes from Confucius, which I'm going to butcher now, but basically it says that when a large tree falls, it falls with great noise and destruction, but seeds grow silently. So what this is saying to me is that all this destruction, all this mayhem we're seeing around us in the world is the old structures of society, the obsolete structures that we must overcome are finally crumbling. They're finally coming up. And this is to an extent, this is mesmerizing us, is definitely drawing our attention, is definitely making a lot of people anxious and sad, especially the events in Israel. I've noticed there's a lot of sadness in the people. They just cannot believe what they're witnessing there. But I would always remind them that this is a historical process. This is in no way to justify anything. I'm just trying to explain it. It's the old obsolete structures of society, old obsolete social and security architectures collapsing, but at the same time, the seeds grow silently. And we know that in nature, beautiful things always grow out of seeds. And the growth of seeds is extremely powerful. It can split rock. And so we have a lot to look forward to, and we have to be aware and mindful of the fact that we are those seeds, that we are the ones who create things. It's not the government, it's not the banks, it's not the central bankers who create anything at all. It's the people who create things. It's people who invent new solutions, uh, start new businesses, write new books and plays and symphonies. It's That's us. And so I think that we have to keep mindful of all this. We have to make sure that we cultivate those seeds that are us with abundant love, with a lot of attention. And then I think that we have a different and new and better world to look forward to and pass to our children and their children as inheritance. So the state of the world is maybe looking discouraging to some people, but I think that these are inevitable processes that are ultimately leading us to a path towards better things. Man, that was a great answer. (laughs) That's the impossible task, and I think you just nailed it. You said a number of things that just got me kind of reflecting. I got to be straight up. I'm one of these people, kind of like the gentleman at the bath conference that was the host. I mean, his name, Oliver. Neil Oliver. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember him talking about, and I, this is kind of a thing. It's almost like a fraternity of people who like started to wake up during the COVID. And I'm one of those people because I never paid attention to politics. There were things like there was a time when I was voting Republican back when the 9-11 happened. You know, I was one of those people, man, go get them. Revenge. Yeah, Patriot Act. I'd have nothing to hide. I mean, all in with all of it. And I remember there was a time when I think the Republicans controlled the Congress and the presidency. And I remember thinking, okay, well, here's some real change. And nothing happened. 
<laughs> and I figured I didn't understand because I don't pay attention. There must be some bigger thing going on here. I'm just not you know, privy to. And it's exactly that. It wasn't supposed to change. It's the illusion of change, but nothing changes. And you're right. And then I was thinking along with the COVID and that whole lockdown, Trump's presidency, he can be a polarizing figure for, I guess, for everybody, really. But that's what woke me up to the role of the media and the educational system, how completely biased and slanted and the power that they had to really shape opinion into levels that I don't think the average person would really go into depth to see how coordinated it was to the point where, I mean, I saw these clips where local news channels, local, not national, would all have the same script verbatim where they're all reading whatever channel. I mean, it's so anyway, the point of all this is there is a shift happening. You mentioned the this occult oligarchy and you said they've run up against a force they cannot defeat. What's the force in your mind? What is that? I would say it's two forces, actually. You know, one is the external force of Russia and China united. Okay, that's very important. And I know that in the West, Russia and China have been demonized to the hilt. It's not by accident. This is deliberate. I remember in, I think, 2018 or 2019, Vladimir Posner made a speech at Yale University. And then in the Q&A session, he said that he paid a group of researchers to comb through three years of New York Times articles, any article that mentioned Russia. And to find one or to find all the ones that mentioned Russia in any kind of a positive light. And you know how many they found? They found zero exactly. This is the environment that we're in because you're only hearing bad things and you think like, wow, these are bad people. Vladimir Putin is a bad person and so forth. And then for China, last few years, it's just been getting hysterical. People are talking all kinds of nonsense. China does not have any history of invading other nations. It has no history of colonizing any other nations. In all of its history, China was going to, it didn't, but it was going to invade Japan while it was under the rule of the Mongols who conquered China. But China in and of itself never conquered, never fielded an empire across the world, never went across the world to subjugate, to colonize, to exploit. They traded. And of course, you know, <laughs> you trade, you trade competitively, you want to get the best for yourself, but they didn't do it by force like the Western state did. And so I think we have to be very careful not to fall again for the demonization that always precedes the next great war. Ortega, Noriega, Chavez, Slobodan Milosevic, Assad, Saddam, they always mount these long cycles, long campaigns of demonization. And then slowly they start to engineer social acquiescence to the next war. When NATO invades Libya, which was the most prosperous nation in Africa by far and had the highest standard of living, then people thought like, well, that Gaddafi was so bad, maybe it's best that we, you know, so what if 20, 30,000 people die, uh, then the next generation is going to live better. And then this keeps repeating itself and repeating itself and repeating itself. And when you look at history and you realize that the United States has started 80% of all the wars in the world over the last 70 years, well, that tells you something. It's a systemic thing. And the American people don't want war, right? No. It's clear because the American people always vote for the anti-war candidate, but they always end up getting more war, with the only exception there being the last four years of Donald Trump that he didn't add any new wars. And he tried to withdraw troops from Syria. He tried to withdraw troops from Afghanistan. He tried to withdraw troops 
from Germany as well. But he was sabotaged in all this by the deep state, by the swamp that is still there and that is still orchestrating war after war after war after war. So this relationship between the oligarchy and democracy goes back a very, very long time. And I'll just read you a quote written by Aristotle. So we're talking 2,500 years ago, right? So I'll read it right out because I don't want to butcher this one. Under democracy, creditors begin to make loans and the debtors can't pay. And the creditors get more and more money and they end up turning a democracy into an oligarchy. And then the oligarchy makes itself hereditary and you have an aristocracy. So this dynamic was noted by Aristotle. It was the exact same dynamic that shaped the Roman Empire as the same exact dynamic that has given shape to the Venetian Empire, to the Dutch Empire, to the Spanish and French empires, and to the British Empire. Then British Empire, when it started to fall apart, it just simply switched hosts and came to the United States at the turn of the 20th century. And then in 1913, they had a big success with the establishment of the Federal Reserve Bank. And then by 1914, they had the United States participated in World War I. And then the next war, and then more wars, and it's just kept. Basically, this is the imperial oligarchy using the American wealth, military power, diplomatic power, political power, and American legitimate structures of democracy in order for them to spread the global empire farther. That empire is of no benefit to the average American person. To the contrary, these wars are costing an enormous amount of money, which is paid by the taxpayer, but all the benefits accrue to the handful of large banks and the mega corporations like General Electric and Lockheed and Halliburton and so forth. I think that that system coming to an end is a good thing. But as Aristotle already noted 2,500 years ago, or however much, that it's the creditors who begin this process by lending money into circulation at interest and then squeezing all the debtors and gaining ultimately political power over them. So let me then shift gears because... I mean, obviously, you know, I listen to these things. And if you think too far ahead, I mean, you mentioned there's a lot of work to be done. Forgive me for interrupting you, but I started there two forces that they're facing. Oh, yeah, what's the other one? Yes. I didn't get to the other one. That's us. And the reason why I say this is because until 20, 30 years ago, we were all dependent on printed media and television and radio for information. And today this has changed radically. And most people, I think, today turn to social media for their news. So we are much, much more difficult to brainwash. And you can see that, that people are gravitating towards podcasts, towards people like Joe Rogan and Jimmy Dore and Judge Andrew Napolitano and all these other people. And they have abandoned the most trusted names in news and the newspapers of record like New York Times and Washington Post and all this. So I think that the oligarchy has a very difficult time controlling the narrative and shaping the rhetoric. And I think that we are also, by virtue of doing our own research, we are learning about the way the society functions, about the role of credit, uh, how economic development happens, where do the benefits accrue to, and so forth. We are learning these things. And the way the system functions was a complete mystery to probably 99.9% of the people 
20 years ago. Today, this is no longer the case. So these conferences that I occasionally participate in, this is what's being discussed by the people. How do we fix the system? And the discussions are phenomenally sophisticated, well-researched. Sometimes you go there, you think like, well, I've done so much research, I think I understand things. And you always hear something new because somebody approached the problem from a different perspective and they have something new to add. But this is all happening. This is all being exchanged. This information is now irreversibly out there. It's not going to go back. The gene is not going back into the bottle. So I think that the changes are inevitable in reverse. So two enemies, us from the bottom up and military powers that are saying no and that are rejecting the diktat of the Western oligarchy. And that's a hopeful message. Gosh, there's a few things you brought up. One is you had mentioned earlier about these companies, these oligarchs, they don't create. My wife actually made a comment. I'm not sure where she heard it, but she said that the devil doesn't create anything new. So this playbook that you've been describing has been the same thing over and over and over again. The creation comes from light. It comes from God. It comes from a force of good, however you want to look at it. And that's what's happening. You're right. There's this collective awareness. I had a client of mine actually say the other day on the phone, in fact, he was talking about reading one of your recent Substack posts. By the way, anybody who wants to follow you should go to, it's the Naked Hedgie on the Substack, correct? Is that right? No, that's my blog. The Naked okay. Hedgie is my blog. Substack is Alex Craner's Trend Compass. Okay, perfect. I'm sorry. You got so much stuff going on. That's I mean, fine. You know, yeah, actually, just Google up Alex Craner online, you'll find him. But he mentioned, he goes, I feel like, and this is a man who's probably, you know, approaching late 60s. He said, I feel like I've been lied to all my life. And that's kind of where I think I've gotten to. And it doesn't scare me. There's actually a freedom in it. I've shared that before. And then I have to say, you mentioned about the seed splitting the rock. That's the article that you wrote that I reached out to you on. I remember that. That was the picture. But the interesting thing is, and this is actually our relationship is a really good kind of example of how this stuff, these seeds sprout, because through you... I mean, I've established connections all over the globe now. I mean, that's not me. That's nothing I could have done except through connection with you. I mean, that interview with John Waters, that's had 11,000 views. I mean, and granted, he popped it on his Substack website, but there was something kind of cool about it, which even you acknowledged. It's just, here's this guy, like right now. I mean, you're over the other side of the Atlantic in Monaco, and I'm sitting here in a small little town in southern Utah, and we're having these conversations. And this is just one little example of stuff that's going on everywhere where people are expressing these ideas. So there's power in that. I think that's what you're getting at. Yes, there's tremendous power in it. And I think that there's some deep mystery about it as well, which you and I connecting is part of that. There's something about this that makes it feel like it was almost meant to happen. Yes. It came out of nowhere, right? Yes. But the fact is that we were somehow on the same wavelength, looking at the same problems and challenges and thinking in the same direction about how to solve, how to overcome. I'll tell you a very odd two elements of my last trip to Samarkand. Okay, so at the end of October, so this was 27th October through 2nd November, I was invited to this conference in Samarkand, Uzbekistan, which is a kind of not an obvious place to go. Conferences are usually in London and Paris and Las Vegas, right? (laughs) Well, this one was in Samarkand, and I got the invitation practically a month before the conference started. So it came out of nowhere. But here's two things that have happened over the last several months. First of all, I had this thought out of nowhere, randomly, completely randomly about Samarkand a few months ago. I said, wait a minute, that's Samarkand. I read something about this. This is something exotic. And I looked it up and sure enough, you know, there's a place where it was the heart of the Silk Road. 
And I thought, oh, this is kind of interesting because this is where all these trading caravans going between East and West passed and exchanged and uh, refueled and rested, whatever. And I thought that would be a cool place to visit one day. And boom, two or three months later, there I was. And then also when I was a teenager, when I was like 16 or 17 years old, there was this Italian band called Mattia Bazar, okay, that I used to be kind of a fan of. They were quite big in Europe. They had a couple of really cold kid songs that we all listened to as kids. And then it kind of receded in the past. And I never gave it a thought again. It was just something that out of my youth, I listened to different kind of music. And then also a couple of months ago, just out of nowhere, I have this thought, oh, Mattia Bazaar, like what happened to those guys? And I looked them up on YouTube and there's a couple of their songs. And then I showed them to my kids. Hey, kids, you know, this is what we used to listen to when we were young. And guess what? When I was in Samarkand, I went to Mattia Bazaar's concert. Oh my God. They were there and they were on the same flight on the way there. And they were on the same flight on the way back. And I met them and had a picture with them taken and all this. And so I thought like how incredibly random that I should have thought of Samarkand and Mattia Bazaar. Well, you know, I thought of other things in the last few months as well. But this is random because, you know, like this is not kind of thing that you think about regularly. Or I could swear I probably haven't thought of Mattia Bazaar for 30 years at all. And there I go. I go there and I met them. So what's the point? I think that the point is that we are connected in a lot more ways than we are aware of. And that some of those connections span across time in the sense that maybe some things that you think today are going to prove relevant down the road that you cannot predict yet. But somehow we're getting tipped about stuff. And so I think that this is the power of us growing as seeds. And I think that the shape of the world to come is already defined. You know, like when you have a seed in your hand, an acorn or a grain of rice, you can't tell out of that seed what it's going to grow into. But the universe already knows, right? And certain things are already resonating. And sometimes we get a whiff of something that's about to come. And so I find all of this very, very beautiful and very, very encouraging. People always kind of snicker that I'm an incurable optimist. And I really am because I can sense that we're going into a better place. And I'm certain that the only way we can fail is if we surrender, if we give up. And we don't have to do that. All we have to do is just like every waking day, put one foot in front of the other, do what you can today, ask the questions that talk to you, interact with people, and that's us cultivating our seeds. No, that's great. And I call it the flow. I've been very aware of getting into the flow and meeting you the timing of that, I mean, there's a bunch of personal stuff that shifted with why we even ended up here in Utah. The timing of my ability to really dive in and not be distracted with a lot of other things that I look back on, and I wonder really how important all that was in some ways, to be able to be aware, and then all of a sudden, for our paths to cross, we'll get into a little bit of economics here before we run out of time, because people forget, you know, with all this geopolitical work you're doing, you also, you know, are founder of iSystem, and you have this investment model in place, which really, to me, is like the perfect fit for the times we're heading into with all the uncertainty. But yeah, there's just, you get into this flow where these things start to happen and you don't question it. You brought up another point because this divisiveness, this us versus them, East versus West, I mean, we've been brain... I mean, I was just thinking of the subtleties of the anti-Russia campaign over here. I mean, who are the enemies in Top Gun? Well, it's the Russian MiGs. Rocky Balboa goes over to Russia to fight. And he's the one leading the unity. You know, if you can change and I can change. But one of the things I've noticed as much as there's been this push for this 
racial tension that's in this country and LGBTQ and all this anti-gay stuff. And the average person I run into just wants to live and coexist. And I've been noticing that people, you know, I go to St. Louis a lot, and that's a place where, honestly, there's been a lot of racial tension over the years. But the last few times I've been out there, it felt different. There's been a different energy. And it's kind of one of those things when you go to places that you're not there all the time, you can notice the shift. And I've just sensed a lighter energy in a lot of these kind of situations where people are just kind of tired of fighting with each other, feeling like they should fight with each other. And and you, you feel it. I don't know how to describe it, but there is a bit of a unity. And so you get into this place where, like you said, people feel this connection. I mean, I'm meeting Melissa Chimay is another great example. I mean, I got on the phone with her before we did our interview. And I mean, we talked for an hour just about life, about God, about the world. I mean, and to be able to do this as if these are people you've known all your life, just like you and I, it's powerful. My business partner, I mean, once you stop fighting, I think is what I'm saying, fighting for these things you think are the way they're supposed to be and just let it happened. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I was looking for another version of Emerson. Well, now I'm my business partner, Amy. She's one of my all-time favorite. I mean, you've met her. She's great. She's one of my all-time favorite people in life. I mean, she's 37. She's young. We're a lot different, but that's the way it's supposed to be. And so I think you're right. This algorithms and these AIs and all these things are trying to, they're based on predictive analytics. And when people start living their lives, and I hate that word genuine way or authentic, I don't know the way to put it, it isn't predictable because we're human. You sort of break this mold and all of a sudden, I know this sounds like a crazy rant, but then you have this darkness that can't create, can't process, you know what I'm saying, the light, the creative energy, because it's not predictable. It's boundless. You're absolutely right. And it is the problem for them that they cannot control the, you know, A, they, they don't create anything and B, they cannot control the creative process. And the creative process always ends up in a different place from what they anticipated. So one after another, their agendas are failing. You said something very important, that most people just want to live their life and enjoy themselves and not fight about this and that and whatever, all this hysteria that is constantly being deliberately pumped into the public and people are tired of it. And I think that this is also true when people imagine dystopian societies, they basically inevitably think about the sci-fi movies you've ever seen with these very, very stern guards that don't let you do anything and they're always have a hair trigger for punishment and you think your life is going to be a complete nightmare. And then people are very surprised when I tell them I grew up in the communist world and I can tell you that I felt a lot freer than I feel today. And I said, like, you know, most people just want to get on with their life. And even though those people who are charged with enforcement, the police, the military, the judges, they want to live their life too. you. They're not thinking about how they're going to punish, round up the dissidents and punish them and make an example of them. That does happen. But for the most part, they just want to live their lives as well. And so things were very mellow. So even trying to contrive this dystopian future, this new world order, build back better, all of this nonsense that the World Economic Forum is trying to put together, it's never going to work because people are just not made for that. You might have a band of zealots here and there. Things might be tighter in the beginning, but they will always kind of dissipate. So not only do we have a chance to proactively build a better future fit to our values, our aspirations, to the ways that we want our children to grow up with and their children, even the resistance to this dystopian alternative 
won't be difficult. It won't be as difficult and as painful as it might seem if you based on your imagination on the movies like, I don't know, The Matrix 1984 and things like this. It just doesn't happen like that because people are people. People are not robots. That's a good point. Even the people that are enforced or in charge with pushing this the narrative along, they still have grandkids and children and families. Exactly, yeah. exactly. They don't care. They don't wake up in the morning and think like, what would Mr. Schwab approve of? How could I please Mr. Schwab? They wake up thinking like, hey, maybe this weekend there's going to be a game. I could invite some of my buddies for a barbecue and we'll have a couple of beers and have a nice time. That's what they think about. You know what I mean? They don't think about how to build back better. <laughs> no, they don't. Oh, my gosh. That's funny. So, all right. So on that sort of transitional note, maybe 10 minutes here left or so. Let's just talk a little bit about the economics going forward. I know that, as I mentioned before, the, the geopolitical expertise and knowledge of history that you have, it does get lost that you also have a pretty broad knowledge and experience with finance. And so talking about this change, I'm looking at what's going on, particularly in Europe. I mean, you're closer to this than I am, but you've got this Maloney in Italy, right? That's one. You've got this growing support for this uh, German alternative for Deutschland party that seems to be gaining in prominence. And then there's also the Vox Party in Spain, if I'm remembering this right. You have this Javier Millet, the one in Argentina, I think that the presidency, hard right, conservative. And then yesterday over in the Netherlands, I'm probably going to mangle his name, but is it Gert Wilders who just won? Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, I'm, all this time I'm spending with the Europeans, I'm starting to understand how to pronounce names. But so you have this rise of, I guess you call it populism. And I think, is it fair to say the EU is sort of this model of what this centralized government, global new world order would look like on a smaller scale, like a test run, so to speak. You know, and our friend Napier, Russell Napier, he talks about how it's falling apart from an economic standpoint. These things would indicate there's also social pressures. And so my final question to you would be, and maybe we can tie this back into the work you and I are doing with Trend Model, the movement in Europe, how does that ultimately carry out over here to say the US? And then how do you deal with it? Because I think that's been from my challenge for as me as a financial advisor working with clients, you've got one foot in, you've got this old system, right? That's still plowing along here. Yet you also, for me, see that there's this shift that you've got to be cognizant of and sort of helping people transition over to, too. It's, it's actually, I mean, on one hand, it's, it's challenging as hell, but it's a very, like you said, exciting time to be in this whole mix. So that's a big, long question of stuff. I'll just dump it in your lap and you do with it what you want. Well, where do I begin? You know, in Europe, it is undeniable that populist movements are gaining power because the European project is an absolute shambles. It's not only economically unviable, its ideology is undiscernible. It's indiscernible. The governing structures are, it's all self-contradictory and incoherent, and it's simply not working. It's simply not working. And most European countries are in an economic crisis that is morphed into a political and social crisis. And the European Union doesn't have any answers. It's only making things worse because it's throwing bad money after good money. It's trying to reduce the nation's maneuvering power, their sovereignty. It's trying to impose solutions that have only made things worse for the last 20 years. And so people have had enough of it. They're saying, get us out of here. And so they're voting for populist leaders. Now, that's a reaction. Whether those populist leaders are going to be able to change anything remains to be seen. Some of them are for real, like Viktor Orban in Hungary. 
He's for real. He has a track record. Giorgia Maloney in Italy sounded good, but didn't amount to much. Italian conditions have deteriorated. Everything she promised to do, she didn't do. She's very, very scrupulously obedient to the European commissions and the ECB, European Central Bank. Then I don't know what the French Front National will amount to if they ever come close to power. IFD, there's going to be very, very stern opposition to them because they, they even had some leaders assassinated and we might live into that kind of a future as well. But basically, you know, I think we're feeling tremors of the European project finally imploding on itself. It's going to take a while, but I think it's going to be accelerated by the collapse of the euro. And I think that the collapse of the euro is inevitable because we have a crisis of recession in Europe and they have no other answer than to print more and more money and force it into circulation through central banks, through big corporates. The ECB is buying bonds of the big corporates. They're incentivizing European governments to spend more, to do public projects and all this. We've seen this before. That's how the socialists were. That's how the communist world fell apart. The economic system managed from the top down and with a fraudulent monetary system that consists of fractional reserve fiat. The collapse is baked into the equation from the get-go. And now it's kind of matured to the point where it's starting to turn down. And the only answer they have is to print more money and force it into the economies through governments and through large corporations. Unfortunately, the United States has the very same power structure, well, not the same political structure, but the same essential economic model and the same essential banking monetary system. And so the dollar is going to have the same, it's going to trace the same trajectory as the Japanese yen, the euro, pound. The only thing is in much, much better position because, first of all, the United States is a sovereign nation, unlike the European Union and individual nations in the European Union. Then the U.S. dollar is still the dominant global reserve currency. That's changing, but it's a gradual process. The United States still is a power to be reckoned with, while the Chinese and the Turks and the Russians have no problem dismissing the representatives of the European Union and treating them like junior partners. Everybody takes the American representatives very seriously, and they're always keen to talk to them and to come to some kind of an agreement with them. So the United States will always be able to, if this set of relationship doesn't work, well, we can change them and then forge different kind of relationship with the rest of the world. But still, it's a power to be reckoned with. It will always be welcome into the community of nations on a healthy mutual respectful basis. The European Union is not in the same position. And then also the world is very used to using dollars as the means of exchange. You know, if you tell them a ton of cocoa beans cost $4,000, people understand what that means. Whereas if you tell them, well, it, it costs so many renminbi or yuan, that takes a little bit of adjustment. And there is this inertia among the people. They say, just tell me what it is in dollars so I know what it is. And so I think that the dollar will prove the most resilient and that the process of unraveling of this crisis will probably take the longest in the United States. I think that the first one to go will be Japan. And we need to pay attention to that because Japan is probably show us how this show goes down. And I think the next in line is the European Union. 
and then probably the British pound and everybody else. I'm not mentioning the Polish Lodi and, and Swedish Krona and Norwegian Krona, but basically everybody's in a bad shape. Everybody's in the same boat. We're all in this together, remember? That's right. <laughs> Well, we are all in this together, but I think that the United States is on the largest boat and the United States has the most resilient system, both in terms of industrial output, in terms of a well-diversified, dynamic economy, a very, very strong entrepreneurial culture. I can tell you, and this is not just my experience, this is many people confirm this to me. When you talk business to an American, they talk business. They listen, they think, they ask questions, they analyze, they say, well, send me some stuff to read and blah, blah, blah. When you talk to Europeans, it's just no entrepreneurial spirit there at all. They're like, what's it say in the catalog? That. Does it tick all my boxes? No? Sorry. That's it. That's the end of the conversation. That's how it goes. I don't know what the magic is, but even Vladimir Putin always say that how he admires the United States because it's a system-forming economy. He said something to that extent, and you can feel that. And so I think that the United States has brighter future than the rest of the Western powers and the Western world. And maybe the crisis will be less acute, but the crisis is coming. And I think that the crisis is going to be a crisis of stagflation. I think that we have to get used to the idea of a commodity super cycle, that the prices of commodities are going to go up considerably, that interest rates are going to rise, that the dollar is going to lose its purchasing power to a considerable extent. And maybe it's going to be some kind of unraveling that maybe the British Empire had at the turn of last century. Maybe that kind of can gauge our expectations of how this is going to happen. For Europe and Japan, I would say that the implosion of the Weimar Republic might be a better model to look at, a much more severe crisis. Yeah. You know, it's good to hear your perspective, particularly on the U.S., because I think a lot of people here just the element of the patriotism and the freedom to do what you want and Ellis Island and all these things that brought people here, immigrants, this promise of a better life. I think, yeah, I guess when you're in the middle of it day to day and you just feel like you're getting beat on, you look around, I mean, living in California, growing up there and the people that continually have occupied office. I mean, it's not like anybody's been voting for these people. I mean, I'll just say it, they're not. And then you look at what's going on in Washington and you begin to lose sight of the fact of what you said because you just feel like you're being led around by just really subpar people. Last part to the trend model. I mean, when you speak of high inflation, you speak of commodity super cycles, you speak of these things. That's what I appreciate about that ability to include that for the clients. Collaborative effort we've had now for, gosh, it'll be three years and coming up next year that it's hard to believe time goes by so fast. But the ability yeah. to take advantage of non-traditional strategies, going short on bond prices, as an example, that's a great flexibility, being able to take advantage of these commodity positions and having a foundation. I think that's the real key. It's not just a whim. Oh, I think this is going to happen. Like you've always said, and you write about a lot, having it tied to actual price trends, not somebody's opinion, not some forecast, but literally what's going on. It certainly is a different way to invest. It does take a lot of patience and discipline. But yeah. at the end of the day, I just, to me, it's all part of this bigger picture of how you and I met and the clients that have been drawn to us. That's the thing. There's people who are looking for new solutions. They're looking for ideas that break the narrative of what most of these firms are bringing to people. And so I'm grateful for that too. Anyhow, any final thoughts before uh, I let you go? And just so grateful for the time today. This has been really fruitful. 
Well, I would just like to end it on a positive note and people just have to try to be mindful that we matter. We started this with the idea that we really were born in interesting times. And maybe there's a reason why we're here. And maybe every one of us has the power to change things, to make the world a better place. Obviously, nobody can build the world by themselves, but you slay the dragon by a million cuts or a hundred million cuts. And so any little way that anybody can contribute, you don't want to succumb to pessimism and sadness and defeatism. So we have to be mindful that we are living in amidst very, very, very unique set of circumstances, discontinuity of something that may have lasted 500 years. And so obviously there's going to be disoriented moments, but we have a unique opportunity to build a better future and leave something better to the coming generation. And then for people who accuse me of being overly optimistic... <laughs> I don't want to sound like I'm defensive, but I have to mention, try to picture what the world looked like at the end of World War I. Because the late 19th century was a time of great optimism, great progress, great blossoming of prosperity in the Western world, in Europe particularly. And everything looked wonderful. And then it all came crashing down and we had this war that nobody's ever seen before. Everything looked very bleak and hopeless, but there we are. We're still there. You know, humanity didn't disappear. The planet didn't melt down. The water didn't drain away from the planet. You know, everything is fine. So we're going to be fine. And so I think it's important just to think how each and every, every one of us could contribute to making the world a better place. And I think the opportunity is there. And maybe we're here for a reason. Maybe we are what we are for a reason, and maybe we're called on to play our role. And in the meantime, life goes on. We have to do the things we have to do. Kids have to go to school. They have to do their homework. We have to go to work, <laughs> do our jobs. So the regular stuff continues, but the changes also, we have to keep an eye on them and just not let ourselves be swallowed up by the pessimism of it. 100%. That's great. That's a good message as we head into the holiday season and head into next year, which I don't know. Yeah, and happy Thanksgiving to everyone. Thank you. And um, Alex, just appreciate the time as always. I love you. I'm just so glad we connected. You're a good man and just good human being and just a sign for me personally that I'm in the flow. So thanks for your time and thanks for coming back on Upthinking Finance again. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you, Emerson. Always good to be with you. And until the next time. Thank you. Emerson Fersh is a registered representative with and securities offered through LPL Financial. Member FINRA, SIPC. Advisor services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and separate entity from Capital Investment Advisors. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. The guest speakers and the companies they represent are not affiliated with or endorsed by LPL Financial or Capital Investment Advisors. Individual tax and legal matters should be discussed with your tax or legal expert. Economic forecasts set forth may not develop as predicted and there can be no guarantee that strategies promoted will be successful. All performance referenced is historical and is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged 
and may not be invested into directly. There is no assurance that the techniques and strategies discussed are suitable for all investors or will yield positive outcomes. The purchase of certain securities may be required to affect some of the strategies. Investing involves risks, including possible loss of principal.